I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Is by letting them talk So I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science Then let them in talk up their body Another one body That's just how it go Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am not your host, PTF. I think he's, I think he's finally back from gallivanting over in the UK. Um, you know, I'm sure he's using a bunch of British slang still this week, which is going to probably be funny, but we'll see how that goes. Um, I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin. Thank you for joining us for another fun episode, another fun week. Uh, thank you for all the support, all the notes, all the messages we've gotten about the shows we've done so far, kind of in this second season, this reboot. Uh, had a great time with Dale Romans last week. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to that, a lot of fun stuff there. Uh, the Steve Asmussen stuff, uh, Sean Borman's episode. There's, there's a bunch of them. If you haven't had a chance to uh, check them out, make sure you do that. Um, want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing uh, for uh, working with us on this endeavor and uh, getting getting into to a position where they're going to grow their foothold here in the U.S., obviously a, a powerhouse internationally, and have had some great skins on the wall here in the U.S. as well, but really looking to kind of ramp up their uh, uh, involvement here in the U.S., so we appreciate uh, their support. Um, look, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Don't forget about that. This is a fun episode. Uh, this is a, a rabbit hole episode where we, we catch up with, with my good friend and, uh, uh, and, and Craig Burnick, where he, he, he talks about, it, well, it's fun. We start talking about his, uh, kind of how he grew up in the game, uh, with his grandfather taking him to the racetrack, legendary Glen Hill Farm. Uh, we go down that path of, of, of why he loves racing and how, what his role is in racing. And then we kind of dive into the, the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation uh, that he founded and is a part of in some of the wins and victories, some of the roadblocks they've had and really trying to advance this game and, and to help this game grow. And so it's a, like I said, it's a rabbit hole situation, but if you're like me, um, I love this game so much. I want to know more about the inner workings and, 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 and why things are the way they are and how they can change and why we do some of the silly stuff that we do. And uh, it's, it's a good, it's a good, a good conversation about that. I'd say the first hour um, is, is just kind of Craig's background. Uh, and then the second hour is, uh, is where we kind of go into the, into the weeds a little bit uh, about uh, this game, this industry, and, and some of the things that, that we both would like to see changed. Um, strap up, about a two hour and 15 minute episode. Craig, what's going on? All good, Jonathan. How in the heck are you? Uh, I'm in I'm in Saratoga. It's cold. It's, the weather's not probably as nice up here as it is where you are at uh, beautiful Glen Hill Farm in Ocala. But you know, I'm getting used to it. Saratoga in March. That's I've never been there, so I hope you're liking it. Yeah, there was like 18 inches of snow last week. So uh, wow. wow, whatever it is, wow. what it is. Wow. Um. Well, look, I, I, you know, I'm excited to have you on. Um, I think a lot of people have seen a lot of the, 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 the work you've done in terms of trying to bring awareness to 
this game and some of the issues we might have. And um, you've chosen an approach I think is different than some people, which is just complaining. You've uh, been heavily involved in the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation is founding that and, and being involved on in the director, the board of directors and, and really coming up with a bunch of reasons why things need to change. And we're going to talk about all of that stuff in detail because I think that those conversations are better had uh, outside of the, the space of Twitter where there's conversation. So we'll get to that. But before we do, I wanted to just to kind of get to know Craig a little bit and how Craig got involved in racing. And I think in order for us to talk about the genesis of you involved in racing, we have to start with your grandfather, uh, Leonard Lavin. So for the people who don't know who your grandfather is, uh, we're sitting next to each other on a plane. Uh, tell me who he is. Well, he's a pretty good guy to get for a grandpa. I'll say that. Um, so I grew up outside Chicago in a town called River Forest. We had a business, um, our family, my grandfather and grandmother started it in the 50s that sold um, beauty products, consumer products uh, all over the world. Um, he started that business in the 50s. And when he became successful, uh, you know, he, his dream from the time he was a young kid, he always had grown up going to Arlington Park, Washington Park, Hawthorne around Chicago, um, his dad and uncle would take him on a train down to the Derby every year. I think the first time he went was like in 1928. His dream was always to own horses. Uh, I think he'd fooled around a little bit when he was younger after the war. Like I wouldn't think they knew the word syndication, but a bunch of buddies maybe bought a horse or two um, like in the late forties. Uh, and he just decided not to do it until he could afford it if he ever could. So when he, became successful uh you know he he hired a guy named willard proctor to train his horses he was at arlington park at the time and i think like 1966 or 67 and he bought the farm in ocala and started racing horses breeding horses um you know raced a lot in chicago and in southern california and i grew up um you know the business had been I, I was born in 78, so they'd been going for sort of 10 or 12 years racing horses when I was born, and kind of from a very, very young age, we would go to our farm in Ocala, where I'm now, for Thanksgiving, Christmas break, Easter, uh, and then when the horses would run at Arlington or Hawthorne, my grandpa would always come pick me up, take me to the races, and I'd go spend a week or sometimes two weeks in Del Mar in the summer where we raced, so I was really immersed in horses kind of from a young age and you know my grandfather he was a very successful business person but his passion was horses um you know he he always wanted to buy yearlings or breed horses he never really bought any made horses um he had a great camaraderie with you know his the, the proctor family who you know were our trainers and managed our farm uh, Willard Proctor trained the horses. Alan Proctor managed the farm, you know, and then many years later, uh, Willard's kids, Tom Proctor, who I'm sure most people have heard of and Hap Proctor. So Tom, you know, trained the horses and Hap ran the farm. So I kind of just grew up in that, uh, situation, which was very much a hobby for our family, for my grandpa. Um, he, he did as well as he could, but he was, he, he never really had a, a business focus on it. He was really very much a sportsman. Um, 
you know, and I, I, I worked in the real world after college, uh, but, but always wanted to do the horses. It was always my passion. I was really close to my grandpa and, you know, I grew up not on a horse farm taking care of horses, but I grew up with essentially sales catalogs, learning pedigrees and racing forms, you know, betting on horses. So, you know, I, 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 I've always sort of gravitated towards the, the breeding bloodstock side and the, you know, the actual form and the racing side. And I've, I've, I've come to the kind of looking at horses physically, the way they move, their conformation and, you know, the care of horses, you know, I didn't really start getting into that until, you know, I was in my thirties and now my forties. So but the, the real genesis for me was always, uh, you know, the, 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 the betting on the horses and then researching the pedigrees and kind of trying to find things that, that, uh, patterns that work over time or things that, things that might work. So that's, kind of it's that's kind of a quick overview of kind of how I got started um but just very close with my grandpa one of the the two racetracks that you named that that sticks out I think and worth a conversation um is Arlington Park which I'm I'm assuming you would consider that your home track correct yeah absolutely you know I I I grew up about 45 minutes away um you know would once I got my driver's license I would go watch horses train there kind of one morning on the weekend all the time and then whenever we'd have a runner i'd go out there you know we usually would have a runner on a saturday or sunday and then fr on fridays um you know when school was in which wasn't a lot of the arlington you know they, they usually started around mother's day and they would run in, into the end of september but you know they start at four o'clock on friday so you know I, I could get to a lot of the races so that that was always my home track um the most beautiful racetrack I think that's been built in this country. Um, great, great, great backside. Uh, wonderful turf course. You know, they switched from a dirt track to a poly track. They had some, they had some issues uh, with horses breaking down. They were early adopter of all-weather racing. Um, you know, and Arlington really has had a Chicago, but Arlington's really had a long history of horse racing and. It's, I, I am, I was always very comfortable there. It is, it is our home track. Um, how does it, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd imagine you have so many memories there with your grandfather and your family and, and the, the black and, and white and orange silks and the yellow cap, just uh, Arlington park probably just like, feels like where that was born. I mean, how, how do you process the fact that it's, you know, that it's gone now? You know, I mean, I think it's just a, I mean, it, it, it's a huge failure for our business and our industry to have sort of irreplaceable facilities in world-class cities that have a history of racing that continue to close. Um, you know, the cor corporate corporations essentially own the bulk of our racetracks now and they're you know, they, they have a responsibility to their investors or their shareholders or their owners or whoever. So you can't, you can't really blame the track management for doing what's in the best interest of their shareholders. But as an industry and as owners and breeders and fans and gamblers and so on, um, I really think that we've kind of let it happen to us. Um, and 
instead of really taking control of our business, our content, our facilities, I, I think I think over a long period of time, we've we've just kind of let um, some of these corporations that own tracks uh, dictate terms to to us as 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 participants. And you know, I've grown up. You know, I, I mean, I went to college in New Orleans. Uh, our farms in Ocala, Florida, we primarily raced in California. And then, you know, kind of the second string was always at Arlington. So, you know, if you look at Churchill, Hollywood Park is closed. Uh, Calder is closed. Arlington is closed. They have not put one bucket of paint on fairground since they bought the place, you know, and they, and they, and they race a couple days a year at Churchill, which is really their priority. And, and, you, and, and, and if you see where they're investing, they're investing in Colonial Downs because of the historical machines. They invest in Pennsylvania because of the casino. Um, they've got the HHR machines at Turfway Park, you know, and obviously they have the Derby and the Oaks, but places that have long histories of racing. I think Fairgrounds is the oldest racetrack in the country, even older than Saratoga, um, or, or, or the first horse race in America was in New Orleans. One or the other is correct. Um, you know, Arlington Park, Equipoise ran at Arlington Park, Buck Passer set the world record at Arlington Park, you know, all the great racing at Hollywood Park, you know, those places are, are closed or on the way to being closed. And, you know, we're prioritizing racing in places that, you know, and I, I, we race in some of these places too, because we have to, but they're, they're definitely just not as special. They don't really speak to you as a, as a fan or as a, you know, as an owner, there's just, you know, there's just something different about walking into a place with history uh, and you see horses on the walls that won important races there and you see the places filled to grandstand. Um, you know, and I, I think we miss that. And, you know, it's really, uh, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I think with Arlington, you know, their their past performances are usually a predictor of future results, and you 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 had seen what they had done to other racetracks that were in areas where the you know maybe the economic viability of development might have been better for them than horse racing. But as an industry, I, I really think more needed to be done, and in the future, more, definitely more needs to be done from a you know, from a horseman and ownership side to make sure we really, um, you know, breeders, owners, trainers, anyone that takes care of a horse, um, we really need to be on the same page here as to kind of preserving our, our racetracks and our history because, you know, I, I think if racing's ever going it'll, to, it'll never be the way it was in the 70s, but if it's going to bounce from kind of where it is today and grow, as a popular sport with sort of more broad-based appeal. I mean, we're going to have to do a lot more. Well, we're going to, we're going to dive into to a lot of the, the things that, that you've worked on. The Thoroughbred Idea Foundation has worked on in terms of handle and breakage and, and free data and, and, and all of these things that I think kind of go hand in hand with your points of, of, of us kind of getting out of our own way and, and, and making the racetrack a more viable business so that sometimes these corporations don't feel so inclined to turn to the, the, the easy way out. Um, 
But before we get to that, I, I do want to ask about your silks because I absolutely when I when I when I had that transition talking about Arlington Park, I thought about this idea with the the black, white, orange with the yellow cap. What what was the what was behind that design? Um, if there was a story, or was it just like let's do this? No, it's actually it's taken after the VO5 shampoo bottle. So if you've ever seen a bottle, the old VO5 logo, you know it was black with a V, um, you know, and then the white with a gold cap on the bottle. So the Glen Hill silks are orange, black, and white with a the hat. The hat is supposed to be it's supposed to be gold, and if you can find a gold cap, it really touches it off great. But yellow is kind of what a lot of the ones have, and it still looks good. Um, but that's kind of the logo for the farm, you know, and the signage is around our barns and, you know, the, the, you know, the silks, the silks are special. I mean, they've been around for a long time and we've raced in a lot of different places in the country. And, you know, I think most people that watch racing, you know, they would recognize silks of, you know, there's probably a hundred stables that have silks you'd recognize. And I'd, I'd say we'd definitely be one of them. I'm, I just Googled imaged VO5 shampoo and I feel silly. I, I never realized that <laughs> it's exactly what yeah. it looks like. <laughs> no, that's what, that's what, that's how it was made. It's pretty, it's actually a pretty good logo. Um, you, you mentioned that your grandfather loved Del Mar and, and in this day and age, it seems like people are usually one way or the other. We both, most of us love both places, Del Mar and Saratoga, but it feels like most people always have at least a little bit of a lean. I started off as a Del Mar man. I have recently switched to being more of a Saratoga man. You love Saratoga, but you are definitely a Del Mar man. And I imagine it's because of all the time you spent out there. Yeah. I mean, look, the rate, the racing in Saratoga is outstanding. And then the history of horse racing, it's really a racing town. Um, you know, you recognize people walking down the street. There's a buzz about it the whole, you know, pretty much right through the meet. And as a racing fan, it's it's just a really special place. And it's it undoubtedly, you know, the two-year-old racing, the three-year-old filly racing, the Travers, the older horses, you know, the turf racing. It's It's gotten, you know, it's gotten outstanding. There's way more horses you know, on the East coast today than there are on the West coast. And the best ones are always feeding to Saratoga, the good maidens. I mean, it's, it's tremendous racing. So you can't, um, you can't compare now other than Saratoga, I would argue that the best racing in the country happens at Del Mar and, you know, the, the vibe, the weather, the lifestyle, the, the beach, the food, the golf, um, post time at two o'clock i mean you can you can literally go to the barn watch horses train uh go for breakfast come home sit in the backyard <clears throat> excuse me and turn on the saratoga racing it's like 11 in the morning you were going to see all the great racing from saratoga then you can you could head to del mar for the last you know late pick four if it's a weekend sort of with good racing the whole day um you know and by the time racing's over at del mar it's kind of 5.30, which is 8.30 on the East Coast. Your phone never rings. You know, you just you just have the whole late afternoon, evening, dinner, whatever. Like, it's just, it's just really, like, for me, the lifestyle around Del Mar is great. Um, you know, and the racing, the racing is good, too. I mean, the, two, the two-year-old racing is really, really good. Uh, we have a lot of turf horses, so the three-year-old 
series for Phillies and Colts on the turf is, is there's a really good program there. Um, the, uh, you know, late in the meet, um, the two, you know, there's a lot of two year old races go, you know, and you can, you can get horses in races, you know, as, as, as the, seems like everybody pushes for Del Mar. So it's, a, there's a little bit of relief in, you know, making races go for horses at Del Mar versus, versus the other California tracks. And, you know, I, I, I really like it out there. I've grown up there. Um, I know a lot of the people, uh, you know, every time, and I know the restaurants, I know the, I know the, the breakfast places, lunch places, dinner places, and, you know, like Torrey Pines hiking. I like, I like, I like the golf. It's just, it's just a different, um, it's a working vacation, Del Mar. I feel like Saratoga, you know, if I had to say, if, like, if I had to go to Del Mar five years in a row, and then the next year you say, could you go to Del Mar or Saratoga? I'd still go back to Del Mar. That's how much I like it. But, um, I can totally see the Saratoga. Usually I'm there, uh, around the sale time, Whitney time. So that's a, that's a, that's a really busy weekend. But for me, the best weekends in Saratoga, if I can get there are when it's not Travers or Whitney weekend. And, you know, you just with the real hardcore race fans and it's a little bit more of a, more of a routine. I think when, I think when the, you know, the jockey club stuff with the round table or the, or the uh, the sale is there. It gets a little too hectic. But the the quieter weeks in Saratoga for me would be what what I would like. And look, every Saturday there's a good race at Saratoga. So anytime you go, you're going to see um, great horses run. So they're both great. But I I prefer Del Mar. But I wouldn't argue that the racing's better. Tell me a little bit about the Del Mar Breakfast Club. So. I don't. So this, I don't know what questions you're going to ask. So I, I, I wasn't prepared for anything. But so my grandfather, um, we he would always have horses in Del Mar. Um, when Tom Proctor, his kid, he was divorced, so his kids were in Ocala, and he couldn't really be in two places. So he, so he trained like kind of Churchill, Arlington, and then down to Florida in the winter. And was able to easily go back to Florida, but it was too much for him to have a California string too. So we wanted to keep horses in California. So we so we had horses with Patty Gallagher, who's a great guy. Um, and Patty's barn is kind of in the pavilion at like the seven eighths pole. Uh, there's a lot of people stabled. It's on the front side, just past the end of the grandstand or the start of the grandstand, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, you know, but Mandela's there, Doug O'Neill's there, uh, Simon Callahan is there, Danny Hendricks is there. And my grandpa would just kind of set up his picnic table. Uh, the Willifords, Roe and Ward Williford would come. They had horses with Patty Gallagher. Roe would bring like English muffins and a toaster. And my grandpa would bring like a thermos of coffee. And they would sit there and basically serve breakfast for everybody that came by. Now, the bad part was or it wasn't bad, but kind of the funny part was when Tom's kids got out of high school, he was able to go back to California. And that just kind of coincided with the time that we ended up having a bunch of good horses. And we became the leading owner in Del Mar for, I think, the 2011, 2012 season. So my grandpa was like 92 years old. So he couldn't get around, but he was still mentally sharp. 
but poor Patty Gallagher still had to put the picnic table out when we didn't have any horses with him. Um, and we were winning races pretty much every week. But Patty was a good sport, and he still let him go there. And I saw Patty last night at the sushi restaurant in, in uh, Ocala. He's still, he's still a great guy, good trainer. Um, but a lot of people that have been to Del Mar have kind of swung through that breakfast club. And my grandpa would give him a lot of shit, forgive my language, but that's what he did. I mean, he, he was merciless. Um, you give, you give it to everybody. And it, it was just kind of funny. Everybody, everybody, everybody cracked up. It was, it was good times. Um, and he would pretty much till, I mean, he was 97 when he died. I mean, pretty much till he was 95, he was still going to that, uh, picnic table. I mean, he had probably 15 good years at that picnic table in front of the, in front of the barn on the front side at Del Mar. How about the, the degenerates poker group, uh, out there? So that was like his, his group of friends, um, that they would go to, they would all kind of go to Del Mar for the summer. They would converge on Del Mar. So my grandpa always had a lot of business in California. We had, um, actually VO five hairdressing started in Culver city, California. Um, so he bought the business out there. We usually had a factory out there. At one point they had a handbag company that was headquartered out there. Uh, business blew up, but I half think it was, he had that business so he could go see the horses train and then go check on the business. I mean, we joke about it, but we had it for a few years, but they'd go to Del Mar. There was always an Alberto Culver board meeting, on a Thursday and he'd go out on Thursday after the meeting. So they'd miss opening day, but kind of every Thursday night for the whole meet, they'd play Texas Hold'em. And it was a good group. Uh, Bob Strauss, who was, he was chairman at Del Mar, but he was like the first U S ambassador to Russia when the Soviet union broke up. He was the head of the democratic national committee. He played in the game like Buzzy Bavese took the Brooklyn Dodgers to LA. He played in the game. Mitch Boyce was like a big coal mine guy. Sam Susser played, Sid Craig played, um, you know, George Struger played for the Rams. He was a big gambler. He played. So all these guys played poker. So when I would go to California, you know, into, I would still go in high school, college, you know, just spend a week. Cause I love Del Mar, but I would always go out for dinner with them and they kind of took me under their wing because there, there was somebody in their 20s that actually wanted to hang out with a bunch of 80-year-olds. Not a lot, but once in a while. But what was funny, they're not funny, but as they started getting older and dying, I got kind of drafted into this poker game. So it was always like a $10,000 buy-in, no-limit hold'em game. And we switched from Del Mar Country Club after Alan Paulson played too. So we always played at Del Mar Country Clubs. After Alan Paulson died, um, Madeline wouldn't let us play at the country club anymore. She kind of had, she was kind of that way. Um, but we moved to, uh, Jenny Craig's house. So I got drafted into the game way too big a stakes for me, but, uh, John Brody, he, he, he had played in the NFL, um, and played in the U S open golf. He's like the only guy that I think ever played quarterback in the NFL and qualified for the U S open. He played too. But what was kind of funny is all these guys, were so old um a few of them had kind of had strokes but they still got together and played 
poker, but I had to shuffle the cards for every hand. I had to check, check, stack the chicks for every, the chips for every hand. I had to deal for every hand and play in the game. So they had enough players. Um, and I wasn't like allowed to check raise. There was a couple rules, but the stakes were too big, but they, the players weren't that great. So I was still able to, I was still able to, I was still able to do well in the game. I, ne- I never <laughs> made a ton of money, but it was still, they, they just needed the player. They all had so much money. They just needed, they just needed bodies. Um, <laughs> it was kind of fun. One time Brad Weisbord played with us. I think we were on a bachelor party for somebody and my grandpa told me I needed to bring somebody. So I brought Brad and he had like a thousand dollars. And when he heard he had to play for 10,000, he got really scared. So we'd always play like on Fridays after the, cause it, it got too late on Thursdays. They all had to go to bed early, but we'd play on Fridays and you know, you'd play for two hours and then you'd have lunch. Jenny lived like right on the beach in Del Mar, like, like literally right on the beach. And then you play for an hour after lunch. And I think Brad was up like $6,000 at lunch and he, he was trying to leave and I wouldn't let him leave. And he was starting to give his money back. So he was just folding every hand and I wouldn't let him do it. He still won a little money, but I wasn't going to let him win $6,000 against all those people. So he still, <laughs> he still won enough to pay for, I think, dinner that night and some drinks. But he, 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 you, you couldn't be in your 30s and play with a bunch of 90-year-olds and take their money. That wouldn't have been fair. So I, would, I, know, I know he had the inclination to do it, but I wouldn't let him. One Dreamer um, in 1994, uh, Breeders' Cup. How much money did you walk away with? Well, never enough when they win and pay that kind of money. But the funny story about that was um, I had, I won about 10 grand. Um, So I was 16 and Tom Proctor always swore she was better on the dirt than the turf. But my grandpa wanted to win the Beverly D because it was in Chicago. So one dreamer had won what's at the time it was called the Louisville Budweiser Breeders Cup. But today we would know it as the La Troyenne, like the, it was an undercard race Derby or Oaks day. And at the time it was a grade two. Now it's a grade one, but the best horses, you know, kind of in the Midwest ran and she won that race like really, really well. Um, and then we just shipped her up to shipped her up to Arlington, um, and we ran in the, you know, the, the prep races for the Beverly D, which she won. And then she ran like fourth in the Beverly D. If the Beverly D was a mile and an eighth, she probably would have won. Um, but it was mile and three sixteenths, and she kind of gave it up the last 50 yards. But she ran well. And then he took her to dueling grounds at the time. And she, she didn't run a jump, but she didn't handle the turf. And... Like he, he, he said, you almost could have run her the next day. Like she did, like she just galloped around there. So when she ran on the dirt at Churchill, she really hadn't run all year on the dirt, except for at, except for Derby day. And it was, a, it was like one of those Breeders' Cup races where at least I'm not sure Hollywood Wildcats, Sky Beauty and Heavenly Prize are all in the hall of fame, but I think they might be. So they all ran, um, and then there were a few other really good horses. So we didn't have a shot compared to everybody. But the horse like Churchill and, you know, 
she almost won the Beverly D like against Hatouf and flawlessly. So she's definitely a high class horse. But she ended up paying $96, um, you know, and ran around there and won on the lead. And it was a race that Alberto Culver sponsored. So, you know, somebody that worked for Alberto Culver gave the trophy to my grandpa, which was pretty funny. Um, but the best story is on the flight home, we were on my grandparents' plane and my grandmother, she said to me, like, how much did you bet? And I go, grandma, I don't want to tell you. She goes, well, how much did you win? And I said, well, I had like a hundred across the board. So I won $10,000. So she goes, well, here, give me $9,000. And I said, well, no. She goes, no, just give me $9,000. And I, I just have a feeling your mom isn't going to let you keep the money. So when we go to Thanksgiving in three weeks, I'll just give you the money. She won't know you have it because we go to Thanksgiving at the farm. So, okay. So when we come off the plane, my mom didn't think the horse had a chance to win. And she had like a sales meeting the next day that she was on Monday that she was running. So she's preparing for it and watch the race on TV. So she like got off the plane. She, she gave my grandpa a hug. She gave my grandma a hug. And with me, she just said, how much money did you win? I said, oh, I just had $20 to win, which would have paid like 960 bucks. And she says, that's way too much money for a 16 year old to have. She goes, but I'll let you keep it. And I said, okay. So then, you know, so like three weeks later at Thanksgiving, my grandma just handed me the money in an envelope, like, like when I was at the farm one day and I had money for basically the rest of high school and first, first year of college. It was pretty good. Oh, that's good teamwork. Yeah, it was good. Is of all the greats, I'm, I'm sure you've got some new ones, some old ones. Uh, who are your the ones that really stick out to you? Glen Hill Farm horses that that just you know make you smile when you think about them, give you goosebumps. I'm I'm sure that one dreamer's one of them. What a memory yeah. that is when you're so young. But who are some of the other ones? Yeah, you know, I wish we had some more like top, 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 top horses. Like if our stable. If I say we had to pat ourselves on the back, I think we do get a lot out of the horses and keep them sound and keep them around. And I think we get a ton of, we get a ton of pleasure out of winning races and winning graded stakes. But I think a lot of people, it's sort of grade one or nothing. And if you point your horses to grade one or nothing, you probably will win more grade ones, but you probably have less good horses um, or less pretty good horses. And, since we breed a lot from our own families, you know, it's really important for horses to win races and get black type and so on and so forth. So, you know, marketing mix and band for me were two great horses. Um, I took over the farm in 08 and I hired Donato Lanny um, to help us buy yearlings, you know, kind of after the 08 yearling sale. So the first crop we bought was in 09 um, and both those horses came out of that crop. So, it was a lot for me uh, kind of starting out, taking over the farm, hiring somebody new, you know, kind of buying the horses at the sales, putting them in our program. They're both really good horses. Band, Band was a very good horse. He, he won, like when he won the American turf at Churchill, uh, I think it was like a 12 horse field and he won by I think eight or 10 lengths. Like I haven't seen a horse run like that I know it wasn't a grade one, but run like that on a, and win by that far on a stage like that in a long time. Um, you know, he came back and he won another stake at Churchill. We tried to run him 
you know, in the secretariat, but he was more of a miler than a mile and a quarter horse. And then he won, he was, he ended up third in the secretariat. He ran well, but it, as a miler, he was a freak. Uh, and then he won the Del Mar Derby. So I think he was like six for 10. He got beat in the Breeders' Cup at two. Um, probably wasn't, he, he'd won his maidens and his allowance race so easily, probably was a little short going in the Breeders' Cup. And Joel moved a little early. I think he'd have won that. He was a freak. Um, but then he broke down at Santa Anita on the turf course. Um, I think he worked in like 51 seconds, you know, just first work after the Del Mar Derby. Couldn't have gone better. Couldn't have gone easier. Garrett Gomez was riding him. And he sort of, as he was galloping out, he saw something like in the middle of the turn. And he, he sort of grabbed hold of the bit and took off. And I think Garrett was a little bit surprised. And when he, you know, when he tried to get hold of him, he put his foot down funny. He, he broke down, not because of the racetrack, just just bad deal. So that horse, I think, was like I remember Wilcox in was a good horse. I mean, he ended up making like a million five racing, and I mean that he couldn't warm up. Ban like Ban was going to be a really good horse. So he he's one for me. There's really special um, marketing mix was the same crop. Uh, she was Canadian bred, so we kept running her up at Woodbine. She got beat in the Woodbine Oaks. She got beat in the next Triple Crown race. I can't remember the name of it, but we finally put her on the grass in the Wonderware Stakes, which is like the third race of the on, of the Canadian bred Philly thing. You know, and she won like, like a very good horse. She, we took her to Arlington. She won the Pucker Up. She's second in the Queen Elizabeth at Keeneland. You know, she won grade one. The next year, she won a couple races at Woodbine, grade twos, and she won the Rodeo Drive like really, really well. She was second in the Breeders' Cup. The next year we brought her back, she won, you know, the, uh, what's the name of the race? The, the Gamely, the last Gamely at Hollywood Park, which was really important for us, which is a grade one. You know, we, you know, she, she was a special horse. You know, when I was a kid, one dreamer, obviously. Then I, I got a kick out of a horse called House Account, who I think he ran... He broke his maiden at two. He won a stake at two. He finally got claimed from us like when he was seven. Um, but he'd win, he'd win three or four races every year. And it just seemed like when I went to the track, he'd run 10 times. But if I went to the track three times, he'd win. Like he just, uh, he was lucky or I was lucky when he ran or vice versa. And I just always remember that horse. And I don't know, nobody would ever claim him. He'd run for 20, he'd run for 25. And nobody ever claimed him. And finally, I think when he was seven, somebody claimed him. Um, but he was a special horse. But you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of special horses. There's a horse called Split Run, who was by Relaunch, who was a horse that my grandpa raced that became a really good stallion. He would, you'd ne he'd never be allowed to run today. He was, uh, he was just a big, um, kind of always unsound horse. Um, now, one of the problems in the horse business today is when horses are unsound, they get a lot of work done on them. They get injections, they get medication, which we really didn't do. Um, but what we'd have to do is we'd have to like jog the horse maybe for half an hour before he trained and then he trained great. Um, but he, but he, but you, you couldn't run that horse today with the vet checks and stuff. He actually, he ran a lot of times and he was sound. He, we never ran him 
unsound, but when he, you know, when he, he was a little stiff coming out of his stall, but I think, you know, these days when people see a stiff horse coming out of a stall, they say, no, no, that horse can't run. So what ends up happening is people give them painkillers, people give them injections and they sort of bounce out of their stall, but they don't have long careers. Um, but this horse ran until he was like six. He won graded stakes. But one day, um, I think he was winter book favorite for the Derby. Like the, He won his first two races in California. Jose Santos rode him. And I remember when Fly So Free won the Florida Derby, Dave Johnson was interviewing him on ESPN. And he said, well, I guess you've got your Derby horse. And Jose Santos said, no, I'll ride split run in California. And he's way faster. Like he said it on ESPN. Um, but he got hurt after that. So he came back. And one day, my grandfather, who had been... Uh, on a destroyer in the second world war, the destroyer was hit by a kamikaze plane. So a lot of their shipmates died. Um, but every year after the war, they had a reunion of that ship. So, and they do it all over the country. But one year, I think it was like 93, it was like the 50th anniversary of the plane getting hit. Um, and they did the reunion in Chicago. And it just so happened that the reunion was on a day that Split Run was running in a race at Arlington, like a grade three. And like we won much bigger races, but my grandpa had like 150 people in the winter circle that he had served with in the war. And like they all had great lives, but you know, he was kind of the one from that ship that had really, really made it. And it was so special for him to be able to bring those guys around and take them to the track and then win the race. So that, that, that race kind of of any race, I was there, I think of any race that we've ever won. I, I've never seen my grandpa so happy. So that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good race. So th th those would be the ones that kind of stick out for me. You talk about how your, your grandpa kind of ran Glen Hill farm is, is, is more of a, of a hobby and you run it now as a full on business, what are some of the focuses? What were some of the changes that you had to make or, and, and what's kind of, what's, you know, what's Glen Hill farms mission statement of, of what it is you guys are trying to accomplish uh, in this industry. Well, I wish I could run it as a hobby, but he's going to had a lot more money than me. So, um, you know, I, I, I was 30 and you know, I, I always wanted to do this business um, and I convinced my mom to help me convince my grandpa to take over the business kind of when he was still alive so that, you know, we could spend more of the money um, that was his, which we which we did. Uh, and I could learn from him, which I did. And, you know, actually spend some time because obviously nobody lives forever. So that so that was how that was kind of how I convinced the family to do it. Um you know, we start we started investing um in stallions we, we we partnered with john secura we started elevage so we were we both invested in that business but you know i kind of leaned on you know we we put up a lot of capital and john put up a lot of capital too um but we put up a, we put up a lot of capital i put up my own capital and i was really able to learn kind of the stallion business from john and we did that for a number of years and we we've done well in the stallion business when, you know, when the government seized Curlin's assets the, from, or the, the Curlin assets from 
the guys that had originally raced him before they sold to Satish Sanan and uh, to Stone Street, I think the original owners kept 20%. And they, they were, they ended up in trouble and having to declare bankruptcy. So the marshals seized 20% of Curlin. So we, we ended up outbidding everybody for that. And that's been a, I think he was like a 30 grand stallion when we did it. And it was about 10 years ago. And, you know, now he's a $225,000 stallion. So that's been great. You know, we invested in violence. Uh, he's done, he's done really, really well. We, we started his career, um, you know, good magic, uh, army mule, you know, they're doing well with their first crop now. And we brought Cantheros up from Florida. McLean's music had only run one time. That was really all John. He's the one who saw it, but we benefited from that. Um, you know, and so I learned that business. Um, and that was a business that made a lot of sense to kind of the, the financial people from our family, because I'm really the only one that loves horses, but stallions, you know, you can model it. They have, you can predict revenue you know, this is how much we think the horse is going to stand for. This is how many seasons we think we'll sell. So this is the earn out on the investment and, you know, all kinds of people in the family office, anyone can understand that. So that was really helpful to the business. Um, I've always loved, you know, racing in Europe, but Glen Hill had never raced a horse in Europe. So we started, um, John and I actually went over and bought some horses that we did really well, uh, you know, putting in foal and selling. We took a lot of risk, but we did very well. Um, you know, but I was really keen to, uh, to start a business over there. Um, you know, because our farm here, it's about 400 acres. There's like 25 employees. There's all of the upkeep of the farm, the equipment, the maintenance, um, the grounds, the farm's beautiful. There's not a, there's not a speck of grass out of place. Um, and it's really for our family, kind of a, kind of a sanctuary. It's where we go for holidays. So it's not a, it's never been like a commercial deal. We don't have clients' horses on the farm. We don't sell horses for other people. And I was never able to convince my mom and grandpa to sort of turn it into that type of business. So I started buying some horses for us in Europe, set up a breeding operation there. We raced there, and we've frankly done really, really well over there. We've got a We've got a really good broodmare band, um, you know, in a smaller racing stable, but some good young horses that, uh, you know, we think this year could be, could be pretty good. So, you know, we've got the stallion business, we've got the, uh, the European business, which both are going well. Um, you know, our U.S. business has had a, has had a tough time the last few years. Um, sort of have had a bad four or five year run. Um, we think we know the reasons for that and we like our we like our three-year-olds there are not very many of them there's only like six of them but we've got 13 two-year-olds that you know they look like a much 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 better group of horses than you know we've raised and sent out you know kind of for the last few years so you know the overall business you know there's a budget it costs cap you know there's there's money that goes into the business it's not cash flow positive yet but the way we sort of evaluate the business is over um, kind of the growth and value over time. Uh, and if we can hopefully grow the value of the horses by more than the money we put in, um, that's very, that's success. And 
we've been able to do that. Um, we'll have some years that aren't as good as others and some years it doesn't go up because it's just like any investment. But overall, we've been able to improve the quality of the horses. And I think the, the young horses in the pipeline, in, especially in Europe, and then the stallion investments that we have, which are, which are, they're enough to really positively infect the business. So we've got, so we've got the whole thing going. Um, I hope I have it set up the way I want and it's starting to go in the direction that I want. So um I'm, I'm happy with how things are going. You know, the funny thing about the horse business is when you, when you, it's like, it's, 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 I sort of equate it to when we used to try and launch new products. Like there's so much R and D um, you've got to get the formula, right. You've got to get the, you know, the fragrance, right. You've got to get the marketing, right. You've got to get the price point, right. You got to make sure that the stores accept it you got to turn the advertising commercial on and then you got to hope that the consumers like your product, but a lot of times they don't. So when they don't, it's today, but all the work that you put in sometimes was three or four years ago. And, you know, with horses, it's, it's very similar. Like since we were mostly race homebreds, um, you know, Curlin's the best stallion. I mean, he's literally gets more grade one winners than every anybody, but we've produced so many turf mares, so our best mares were turf. And as I've bred them to Curlin, you know, they haven't, you know, we haven't produced the top class horses, but I know that now, but we've sort of spent four or five years trying to do it. Um, so the young horses we have now, the ones by Curlin are kind of out of dirt mares and our turf mares are now being bred to horses that get turf horses. So, you know, when, when you see the results on the track, you know, we usually know when we have bad horses, but we're still hoping they win. But, you know, you, you really have to look back at the decisions you made three or four years ago and figure out what what happened and kind of the process that you used and try to try to make it um, better now so that things we do now really pay off in two, three, four years time. So that's that's kind of how we run it. It was a no brainer, though, right, to try to do that with your interest in curling and having all of these unbelievably well-bred mares. Like, didn't, didn't you like have to take that chance to see if it would work? Yeah. And I, you know, honestly, we had a Curlin, um, there was a mare that we had Tom trained for a lady named Barbara Hunter. Um, and she had a really good mare called Moto kicks, a storm cap mare. Um, and he, he raced a horse called Kirtana who was by Johar that she made a million dollars and never won anything be over a grade three. Like she was a really good horse. She ended up, she, she, she shouldn't have won the Breeders' Cup, but she almost won it. She was third, um, behind shared account in midday but i mean generally she, she got beat a neck for the whole thing she was a really good horse um by johar i don't think johar ever had a runner besides her and then her sister was called snowtop mountain who won a lot of stakes as well and she was grade one placed i think she made six or seven hundred thousand racing um and she was by a horse called narjran who i think she had one good horse wasted tears who was Cornish's mother. Um, but other, but I mean, this is like a 2% stakes winner stallion, like two really bad stallions that had good horses. So when Mrs. Hunter died, uh, her family sold Kirtana and Snowtop Mountain publicly. I think they both made a million dollars at Keeneland January. But I ended up buying, actually Shannon Arvin, who's head of Keeneland now, was in charge of, Mrs. Hunter's estate and Tony Lacey, who's the head of sales at Keeneland, uh, was her advisor. 
I think that's how Shannon and Shannon and Tony know each other a long time, but I ended up buying for the farm, all the rest of Mrs. Hunter's horses. I think there were like 11 horses. So they had bred this mare to Curlin and you got to remember Curlin at the time, I think when he retired was like a 75 grand stallion. Jess Jackson might've died the year after he retired and they were breeding mares to Curlin for like $25,000 before he ever had a runner. Um, you know, they really dropped his fee. So they bred this mare who'd never been to a good stud to Curlin and we got diversity Harbor. So in the package of 11 horses, diversity Harbor, she'd been through the yearling sales. I think she was like a hundred thousand dollar RNA. Um, I remember she towed out really badly and they actually had, they had her shoes on trying to use, trying to correct her confirmation and it just made it look worse. So when we got her to the farm, I Snowtop Mountain and Kirtana weren't Glen Hills, but this Philly Diversity Harbor was, and she was she was a really good horse. She won first time she ran. Um, it was a TDN Rising Star. She won a stake the second time she ran. She ended up being Grade Two winner, Grade One place, and she was by Curlin. So I had it in my mind that Curlin could sire turf horses, but I actually just think that mare was a freak because she had top class horses by Johar and Najran. And, you know, she had one by Curlin too, and he's definitely better stallion than them, you know, by a hundred times. Um, so that's kind of what was always in my head with Curlin. And it's taken a long time to figure out that, you know, he, he's, 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 he, you know, we're running a Curlin Philly on Saturday at fairgrounds in a stake um, on the turf, you know, but the mother was a good Philly on the turf. And, you know, this horse has run eight times, and she's won three, you know, but the, the only three times that we've ever run her long on the turf, she's won. Um, so she deserves a chance in a stake, but I haven't seen a Curlin that's anything better than kind of a grade two horse on turf. And I don't know how many grade one winners and champions he has, but they're, they're not turf horses, you know? So Glen Hill kind of started, you know, as, as being very kind of Philly oriented and, and having, uh, you know, kind of basing it around finding, you know, great fillies and, and, and continuing the, the breeding operation. Uh, your wonderful wife, Lindsay, wanted me to point out that you clearly are doing that at home too. Cause you have, uh, you live with six females, her, your three daughters, and you have two, two girl dogs. So, um, she, she said you, you kept it, kept the tradition going. I was trying to be around pretty girls all my life, but it kind of got, it kind of got a little carried away once I started having kids. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> so, you know, there's a little bit of, of kind of how you came to this game and your involvement in this game. But I think a lot of, you know, newer fans, especially, um, and, and, and I know a lot of horse players have, have, have paid attention to a lot of the work you have done kind of behind the scenes because of the passion you have for this game and, and uh, because of, of your, your background in, in business and, and, and being around such a successful business and, and being able to kind of recognize the mistakes that, that sometimes we make or unfortunately more often than not we make in this game. And, and uh, you know, I'll let you kind of take the story where you want, but, you know, you, you were on, we became close around the time that you were on the Breeders' Cup board and um you you started the wagering committee uh we, we were there you were one of the kind of quote-unquote younger people on the breeders cup board and were, were 
we're having ideas of how we can kind of shape and reform the game. Um, you were no longer on the board and then you decided to start the thoroughbred idea foundation. Um, I'll let you take it where you want to take it into this conversation about some of the initiatives and some of the ideas with that you guys are, are working on at the thoroughbred idea foundation. Honestly, I mean, I have a different background than most people in the horse business. Um, you know, I grew up around the business and um, I'm, I'm not a self-made person. Thankfully, my parents and grandparents came before me. Um, so a lot, I think a lot of people that come to the business, they were, they grew up in it. Um, there's a lot of breeders and, and there's a lot of farms where they've gone on to the second and third generation, but there's very, very few people that race horses that have gone on to the next generation. Because I think usually somebody has a passion um, and it doesn't usually translate to their kids or grandkids because um, it might take them away from the family or they just might have a different interest. So I think when I came into the business, I spent about five years um, just trying to get my head around horses themselves because I'd always, you know, knew our horses and I'd obviously watched the uh, important races and I like to bet on horses, but I, I really needed to learn the industry. But after about five years, um, you know, I started going, getting, you know, a little bit more involved in um you know, the boards of the, of the horse business. My grandfather had never, he, he, he sponsored Breeders' Cup. Alberto Culver sponsored Breeders' Cup from the inaugural Breeders' Cup for the first 35 years of Breeders' Cup. And they never elected him to the Breeders' Cup board. Um, and he was never a jockey club member. Um, he did get the Eclipse Award of Merit, you know, so he was really highly thought of in the business, but he was never an insider in the business. Um, you know, I don't really understand why, but he wasn't. Um, he wasn't really commercially active. Uh, he'd buy horses now and then. He'd sell horses now and then. But generally, he raced his own horses by his own stallions from his own families. Um, really old school. You know, and I started getting involved. You know, the McKinsey study that came out like in 2011, um, I think the first time the jockey club hired McKinsey, um, you know, it said the thing that has always stuck out to me in that study, and the, the thing was like 80 pages and they covered a lot of ground, but the thing that stuck out for me was that um, only 50% of people that are fans of horse racing would, would, would suggest their friends and family become fans of horse racing. And when you compare that to other sports, um, they were all up in the 90s. And then when you looked at the average age of horse racing fans, ours were, I think, 70, and other fans were in their 30s and 40s. And then when you looked at participants of horse racing, they wouldn't really recommend it to their kids either. Um, and I thought that was the most glaring issue for our business because we've got an aging consumer it's seen as an old sport and even our participants and our, and our fans were recommending racing to the next generation way less than they did in any other sport. Um, and, you know, I grew up in Chicago 
and there were two or three people that kind of would come to the OTB at Maywood Park with me occasionally, but none of them, you know, got that into horse racing. And then, you know, when I started in my career and started making friends, I brought a lot of them, you know, to the races. Uh, I brought them to the Derby. I bring eight people to the Derby every year from like the time I was 24, you know, and still do basically. Um, and very few of them, you know, sort of said, I want to buy a horse or how do I get involved in this? So I knew we had a problem because I, I would show people it's pretty good. Like we, we put on a pretty good derby. Um, you know, we can get into the restaurants. We, we usually have a, like a sprinter van, um, bring like s local celebrities like you around to show people how to bet. <laughs> um, so, you know, even still like, yeah, they have a great time, they have a great weekend, but they're not like, when's the horse sale, you know? So, or, you know, they're not calling me the next Saturday or two weeks later saying, who are we betting in the Preakness? So I knew we had a problem. Um, so as when I started joining boards in the business, um, I have a sales and marketing background that's always, the consumer is always right, okay? Like if you launch a product and the product is successful, it's because the consumers accept it they accept it at its price point. They, they accept it versus all the other products in its category. And, you know, you have a business. And if they don't, you definitely have something wrong. So in our business, um, we basically have either new people who have made a huge success of themselves in business that have come to the horse business kind of later in life and they're asked to be on boards. And though they have amazing business expertise, their horse knowledge probably isn't as good as their knowledge in the regular business. And then we have a second category of board members who grew up on farms taking care of horses, and there's no way their business acumen is as good as the other one sitting at the table. Um, but when I got on the board, I found horse people that knew more about horses than me and business people that, you know, had been more successful than me. But I, I probably unquestionably knew more about business and have served on boards of companies, you know, around and, uh, you know, evaluated businesses and have, you know, worked in business, run business. I definitely knew more about business than most of the horse people. And just because it was a full-time thing for me when I was 30 and didn't come to it when I was 60 or 70 and it was all I was doing, I knew more about horses than the business people. And I was sort of trying to be a bridge between the two. Um, and when I got on these boards, I was kind of looking for white space, which is what I was always taught when you join a board, try to find something that you can do that's not being done. So we took up wagering when I got on the Breeders' Cup board. So we built a committee with you know, I thought were the first time there was ever members of a Breeders' Cup committee that weren't Breeders' Cup board members. So I found, I think, four Breeders' Cup board members that bet a little bit. No, no, none of them would be considered um, really big gamblers. But like David Richardson, who was alive at the time, he'd gamble quite often. Um, Mike Levy, you know, his father had owned Atlantic City Racetrack and he would bet. Brett Jones bets a bit he plays the future wagers he, he you know he bets um and me 
But what we really did was we leaned on the expertise of some kind of outside people. So we had Paul Matisse, we had Joe Applebaum, you know, we had you obviously, and we had Tom Quigley. Um, so we had four people that I thought were like, first of all, had been around for a long time. Um, I thought would be respected in the handicapping community. Uh, Joe owns horses. Paul owns horses. You obviously understand um, this, the generation that we're, we're both getting old now, but at the time, the generation that we're trying to cultivate uh, understood media um, and Quigley, you know, he worked at a racetrack, so he wasn't just a complete um, outsider. And I thought Breeders' Cup would like him. He understood tournaments. You know, he had pl Horse Player magazine when he was coming up and really knew a lot of gamblers. So we started this wagering committee, and then Mike Rogers was on it from Breeders' Cup side, too. That was a guy I couldn't remember. Um, and he was kind of sending it as representative on Breeders' Cup. Um, and we tried to look for ways to... Breeders' Cup's only two days a year, but I really thought that if we presented kind of handicapping and wagering issues to the 45 Breeders' Cup members who are leaders in the sport, I thought they could take that knowledge. A lot of them serve on racing commissions. A lot of them serve in other organizations. And I thought that if we could kind of raise the level of understanding amongst the general owners and breeders, we would not right away, but in the long term, we'd benefit racing. I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to say that I've never heard other than, oh, this was our handle at Breeders' Cup. Like I've never heard any sort of analysis of wagering, pricing, how it has changed, um, who's betting, you know, are they betting on track? Are they betting off track? Are they betting at a casino? Are they betting through an ADW? Are they betting, you know, through a CRW, you know, there's there's so little understanding of gambling, wagering, um, and there's so little understanding of how that wagering actually affects the business from purses um, amongst leadership in our industry, owners and breeders. Um, it's shocking. Um, and when I was on the boards, I, I thought I was always polite, but I always tried to bring up some of the wagering issues because our consumer who is the wagering customer, you know, is really the person that funds our sport. You either race for purses or you work at a racetrack. So anybody that takes care of a horse ultimately or invests in a horse or has a farm or has stallions or pin hooks or races horses is a veterinarian, is a blacksmith, is a jockey, works on the backside, drives a van, sells horses, whatever, you, you should be a lot more in tune with the sort of wagering trends and how the wagering affects our revenue in the horse business than we are. And if you work on the racetrack side, um, you know, I, I know a lot of these people are, they love horse racing too, but their bosses are kind of gaming executives or casino executives and people investing in those businesses. But you know, we really, we really have, have never done a good enough job of really reporting um, on our wagering issues and kind of our handle. So a few of us got voted out of Breeders' Cup. Um, and 
you know, they voted us out, they voted us out. So generally the people that got voted out of Breeders' Cup were much more progressive than the people that stayed in and um, the people that were elected in our place. Generally, they kept people with horse knowledge. There's a few that, like Gavin Murphy and Barbara Banke, obviously have had tremendous careers outside, but generally they, re, they, they, they sort of voted in people who were from Kentucky that you know have horse expertise, which is fine, um, but they kind of voted out people that were looking to, I mean, they voted out innovation and wagering essentially. So they, they, kind of, they, kind of, they kind of voted out people that were more outward looking the way I looked at it, but obviously I lost. Um, so, you know, that's my story, but there, there's, there's another side of the story too, but this is my JK plus one, not there. So I'll tell that story. <laughs> so, um, you know, when we, when that happened, I thought that, you know, generally the boards, there's been this my whole career, which is only 15 years, but it had started way before I got in my whole career. Um, there's been a war between sort of jockey club and breeders cup type owners and rank and file horsemen over regulation, over medication, over integrity. Uh, and I think everybody wants what's best for the sport. Um, but they find way, it's, it's like politics. They find way more at fault with the other side. And that's what they really rally behind rather than trying to find ways to really grow our business, grow our revenue, um, grow our popularity and so on and so forth. So we'll, so when we started the idea foundation, um, I put, or I asked, and everyone said yes that I asked, but I asked a bunch of people to be on the board who were not new owners, but had a major stake in the business. Um, and we decided that we would not um, ever discuss what we called third rail issues. So we wouldn't discuss HISA, we wouldn't discuss um, LASIX, we wouldn't discuss WHIPs, because there's so many organizations that already exist, like they make fun of the alphabet soup, but there's Breeders' Cup, there's Jockey Club, there's TOBA, there's NTRA, you know, there's race, there are MTC, ROAP, ARCI. Every state has their own racing commission, breeder organization, um, and horsemen's group. And essentially, if you look at the if you look at the mission statement of every single one of those organizations, they're all looking to improve horse racing, integrity of horse racing, some the safety of horse racing on behalf of owners and breeders and horsemen like, like, like literally 40 organizations have a ostensibly the same mission statement so what we tried to do was figure out a way to discuss issues that if adopted would improve the business for gamblers or horse players gamblers is a bad word sometimes but horse players and owners so I am both, right? So I probably, and, and there's a lot of horse players that own horses and there's a lot of owners that play horses. Um, and I'd definitely be more of an owner that plays horses than the, than the other side. But 
you know, Paul Matisse owns horses and Jack Wolf really gambles, you know, so, so like, like we, we look for people that did both um, and had an understanding of both. And, you know, we, we, we look for ways that if, if we could adopt the issues, if we could adopt the ideas that we advocate for would improve the business. Um, and we, we purposely put people on the board that weren't all coming from one place so that we would just have agreement in the boardroom and say what we wanted to do. So like Corey Johnson at the time owned Kentucky down, so he could really give the racetrack perspective. Um, you know, if we have an idea that the racetracks just would never go for, wouldn't, would be, would interrupt their revenue model too much. Corey would sort of put his hand up and say, listen, can't do that. Um, so every idea that we ever advocated for and all the white papers that we wrote and we stopped writing them because we, we thought it was better to try to advocate and lobby for the ideas that we have rather than keep making new ones. Um, but they all were read and accepted by everybody on the board. And there was a lot of discussion and a lot of sections changed that weren't quite as radical as some people thought they could have been or should have been. So a lot of times when we sent a white paper out, it was something that we thought could have been accepted from all parties. Um, not just like what gamblers would do if they were in charge, because obviously, you know, that, that that's, that's be unfeasible when it gets to the industry. So, you know, Pat Cummings, who we were so fortunate to hire, um, he has a he's had a great career and he could have his own podcast and you could take him through it but basically he was running public affairs for the hong kong jockey club his contract was up he didn't he, he would have to renew it in the same job which nobody had ever done before so he did a great job but he was ready to come home um and i tried to get him a job at breeders cup and they thought he was great but they didn't have a specific role for him so when we started this organization we hired him and everybody said how did you get him I said, well, it's, it's like if you ever want to buy a horse or if you ever, I, I, I'm thank God married now, but if you ever want to ask a girl on a date, what's you just have to ask. Like a lot of people just sit around looking. Um, <laughs> and I said, Pat, this is what I want to do. And he said, great, I'll come and help you. So Pat came on. So Pat was really passionate about the rules, um, the interference rules, the category one versus two because he'd worked in Hong Kong and he'd really understood racing around the world. And he thought we could advocate for that um, because, you know, our, our, I think our stewards, they go through a lot of training and they're really good people, but the rules themselves leave so much ambiguity in the way they're going to rule things um, that, the, that, that, that the results are just way too inconsistent. So we advocated for the category one stewarding, which is slowly starting to happen. Um, we advocated for breakage, which I think should be adopted everywhere, but at least it's been adopted in Kentucky. Um, we've advocated very hard for free data. Um, you know, I'm a sports better too. And, you know, I think horse racing, which started out as a gambling monopoly, literally the only legal form of gambling and the only legal form of internet gambling now has, now is faced with competition um where everybody with a phone in like whatever it is 36 states can bet 
on a sporting event that they grew up playing in gym class or in their backyard. And we're trying to teach horse racing to people, which is a much more complicated game. We're asking them to pay for the information to actually analyze whether they even want to bet or not. And then once we get them to do that, we're trying to charge them way much, way more money than sports bettors are charged. So we've really advocated for positioning our sport so that it's competitive for new players and anything that we achieve is going to be a benefit to existing players too. Um, so we've really advocated for that, you know, and then we've, we've also advocated for fixed odds wagering or sports style wagering in horse racing. Um, and I'd be really passionate about this and think it's something that um, we should have in our sport. I don't think most people know, um, and definitely people that own horses and ser serve on boards don't know, but I think the the win place and show daily double and exacta wagering, or win place and show daily double and exacta wagering, I think is only one third of all the handle in our country. And win betting would be about 10%, I think. I might be wrong, but I think it's about 10% of the betting in our country. But it gets all of the uh, attention kind of when the racing's on the national TV and so on and so forth. So um, I think if we had fixed odds wagering, it wouldn't really corrupt um, the bulk of our handle, but it would open up so many opportunities for our business. I think if, like if I were Churchill Downs, which I'm obviously not, but if I were, I would open up betting on the Derby. Essentially, after the horses hit the wire for the previous year's Derby. So every horse that races as a two-year-old, I would give like a four-digit code to. So every time there's a horse in a maiden race, they get their own four-digit code. And I would open up betting on those horses in so many ways. I'd say, will this horse win the Kentucky Derby? And, and, and I would have a price for that. Will this horse make the Kentucky Derby feel? I would have a price for that. Once the, once the points system starts, you know, with the Derby points, I would say, what is the over under on these on the points that these horses are going to earn on the road to the Kentucky Derby? And obviously you have risk management in the back room that changes that based on the horse's ability and how much money is being bet, just like any book. Um, but if I were them, like you just think about it, anytime a horse wins any race, you're on TV, you're going to say, oh my gosh, this horse before the race was 750 to one to win the Derby, but now you can get them for 150 to one. Like all people would be saying is Derby, 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 Derby. And as a way to really market their sport, their, their, their event and keep it in the public, um, eye, like I would, I would be the biggest advocate for fixed odds wagering on the Derby. And it's not just who's going to win the Derby. There's so many things you can do in a fixed odds race that would make racing really popular amongst the general public. And you'd actually attract a lot of sports bettors too. Um, but they're against it. It's, it's the oddest thing I've ever seen. So yeah, like so, I would be for sports fixed odds. I, I want to tackle this a little bit. Um, the sports, this, the, the, because you make a good point and, and I've heard these conversations. We've had them. I've had them with Pat. I've had them with other people. I've, and, and just for those who are listening, 
and correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, but the, the, the issue that the racetracks and the operators have and why Craig brought up that point about only 10% of the wind pool, blah, 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 or only 10% of wagering is on the wind pool when play show is because the horsemen are concerned that if you go to a, to a sports betting model for other opportunities of wagering opportunities, first problem is you'd have to lower the takeout. You cannot operate a, a, a two-sided wager with a 15%, 16%, 17% takeout. It just won't work. It, it, it just doesn't, it's got to be lower than that. So they have a problem with that. They're concerned about that because then they think that they're going to then lose handle that they're already getting. And that is why they balk at this idea. Am I correct? I think people that are, I, I think there's some people that balk at that idea. Um, but I think if you explain to them the way the economics would actually work, and the fact is you're really only affecting a small percentage of the total handle. And it's not that hard for people to understand that when you lower the takeout, they win more and then they bet more and the whole thing grows once you show that to people. I think, I think people don't understand if the only way there's less revenue when you lower takeout is if the betting remains the same. But what everybody understands is when there's lower takeout, there's more churn and there's more betting back and there's more money returned to customers. They don't just take that they don't take that money and go home. They bet it back. We're very, very few, very, very small percentage of our wagering is on three times a year horse players, like or less. Most people betting horses are betting every day or betting every week. Um, and if you lower the takeout, they're going to be able to bet more and you'll end up growing your revenue. The way the, the, way the takeout and there's a graph on it on the CHRB website, but the way the takeout is divided of the money held, like there's so, there's so little going to purses anyway. Um, if you opened up a fixed odds model, you'd have to um, do uh, some sort of new contract that was agreeable to horsemen and tracks, um, but it would be, People that argue against change or argue against innovation, a lot of times they forget how messed up this business is. And if we do nothing, what's going to happen and the trends that are going. I mean, we, I mean, we've been on the phone for almost an hour and a half and we haven't even talked about the computer players. But at some point, the computer players are going to have eaten all the big players and the, the takeout or excuse me, the rebates. So the, so the net revenue to the horse business from the com computer players is so small that if we, if we remain at the same, same handle, but the handle completely shifts to the super highly rebated robotic players, the revenue that's created from betting on horse racing isn't going to be enough for people to go race horses. Um, we're going to lose everything but our slot subsidy and if if you have a business 10 or 15 years from now that has completely slots funded purses or or um historical machines because slots is a bad word in kentucky uh or casino funded purses and very little from wagering at some point politicians 
because their politicians are going to say, you know what, I don't like horse racing because gambling is bad. And there's going to be another politician that says, you know what, we should be taking this money that's funding horse racing and build roads or help schools. And you're going to have racetracks that say, that'd be great. We'd love to give the money from horse racing to schools and roads, but let us just keep our casinos and we'll be able to give you more money. And that's what's going to happen. That is literally what is happening with the dog tracks in Florida. And don't think it won't happen in Pennsylvania and so on. So if we don't start to figure out ways to grow our wagering and activate consumers, we're going to lose our business. Um, and you know, I don't, I haven't, I haven't met a horseman that when you sit down and talk to him about the opportunity and what you'd actually be giving up, what percentage of the handle you'd be giving up and what, and, and what the potential would be just from a marketing standpoint in actually presenting horse racing in a way that bets are presented to other consumers, um, you know, that would, that would just be vehemently against it. Like, so I think the tracks always say the horsemen are against it, but they're the horsemen. If they, the horsemen want Lasix and the jockey club breeders cup wants to fight against Lasix and they want that. That's what they're really passionate about. If you could get them, if you could get them keyed onto some of these wagering uh, issues and actually like, I know that you called me, asked me to do this podcast after I wrote the op-ed for the TDN about the analysis of handle. If you actually reported handle, you actually had an office of wagering analysis, we could call it almost something that reported on betting, how it's changed over time um, and what that resulting change makes the business look like. And if we keep on this track, what's going to happen? I think everyone will start making better choices. But, you know, right now the tracks, um, they love to say the horsemen wouldn't do that. But I think that they would if we actually if, if we actually had the information of how much elite turf club bets, you know, how much on track bets, how much ADW bets, how much rebated ADW bets, how much casino bets, and then what the resulting takeout effect the, what the actual takeout once the rebates are in are from each of those channels and then how much of that money goes into purses which is what the horsemen care about from each of those different columns or silos if you will and then show how that's changed over the last 20 years it's going to become pretty simple that the business is on is on a one-way track to a dead end i mean like, 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 like it's pretty simple if you start to understand what's going on and it's, you know, the marketing idea of it too, which is, which is so the, kind of the frustrating part to me is like, all you have to do is, is, you know, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday of last week, turn on your TV or look on your, uh, you know, on your Twitter or, or, or check your email for all of the random people who are inviting you to their bracket pools. When you give people something that they can digest, something they can hold, it makes the sport more enjoyable. And that's what college basketball did with a piece of paper with 64 teams on it and a point system and a $25 to your friend in Venmo has made college basketball and those, these four weeks so important. And, 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 you know, the same can be said about, about fantasy football and football. 
you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear like, someone like, who could care like less the, the, about the, football. The, it's amazing because the, the more, the more significant the games become, the more it's just the hardcore fans watching it. Everyone's excited in the first two rounds because their bracket's still alive. That's when everyone's tweeting about it. That's when like, it's the opposite of let's just watch the Kentucky Derby. Like, like, like the, the random games, 12 versus five. And did you pick an upset and what's it like, like, like those games are, they've made games between two supposedly not that great of teams become so crucial because of exactly what you say. And in, if you compare that to like, I think a pair mutual system's great. Um, you know, because you get a fair price based on the way everybody's bet, but because of the volume that's being bet, you know, at the very last second, there's really no way that I can look at a tote board when the horses are in the paddock and see if I like the way a horse looks, have done my handicapping before, try and figure out what the, I guess if I have an understanding of the will pays in the, in the, in the bets, I can, I can, I can figure it out, but you really don't have any idea what the price is of a horse except at Naira, um, because before the horse runs. And if you're trying to market that to new players, the minute they bet on an eight to one shot that wins and they find out they're getting uh, 1040 because the horse went off at four to one, they're going to get pissed off. And that's what happens. So, you know, like it, it, if you're trying to think about how to present a business to people that might like it. I understand the handicapping puzzle and I understand um, that it's really, really, really attractive to smart people and uh, it will continue to be so. And I don't think anything that is being suggested would take away from most of the bets that the really smart people are doing anyway. Um, most people that are arguing against fixed odds kind of in the Twitterverse are arguing for a perfect paramutual system with great takeout, which uh, that's the first thing I want too. I mean, if you could get that, um, you wouldn't need a fixed odds. But just like I said with the TIF, um, there's, there's no way anyone, even though they should, everyone, every bet should be 10% takeout in every pool and the business would probably handle $50 billion a year. There'd be way more revenue for everybody, but nobody, nobody is there's statutes that have that have minimum takeout that you'd have to go state like there's so much in there that would need to be changed that this idea um it, it's not a replacement for the for the for the pick three pick four pick five pick six super effective super high five wagers you know twin trifecta if they add it would be great but like Multiple combinations of winners, um, you know, in a 10 horse field, you got to have four things or in six races, you got to pick six in a row with lots of combinations. Fixed odds cannot account for those possibilities. So it's always going to have to be paramutual. And that's where the bulk of the play is anyway. Um, those bets should be lower takeout too. But I think the fixed odds, like if you... Like if you go to Saratoga, which is your racetrack now, or we go to Keeneland, you're going to have more first-time racegoers than at any other racetrack. And if you brought them in 
and you gave them a menu of wagers, pick A or B in these races at this price, you know, or, or whatever, like you, you'd, you'd have, you'd have people learning how to bet in what is today a really intimidating environment because you're charging them 10 bucks for a racing form and they're opening it up and it looks like the Rosetta stone for the first time someone's seen it. And, you know, it, it's, it's not that easy. Now I love it and you love it. And most anyone who listens to this podcast is already converted to horse racing. You know, you know, nobody's gonna, nobody that isn't a horse racing fan is going to listen to this. But if you try to put yourself in the position of marketing the business to somebody new, you, you've got to look at new ways. And I think the fixed odds, is the simplest thing we can do. And, and it's like, for me, it's just, it's so much more digestible. I mean, just imagine at Saratoga on an 11 race card and people make fun of the roulette bet that they try to do in California all the time. And the takeout I made, was, I made fun of, I made fun of that too. Yeah, I know, you, the, I know you, you, you were on, you were on an Island there defending it. I don't well, the takeout was, was the takeout was the problem. And I, I, the mistake that I had was that the takeout was the huge problem. It's why it didn't work. But the concept, let's just pretend it was a, a 5% takeout wager. The concept is killer. It's killer yeah, because it, it, it would have been great if it was the right takeout. But what they what they tried to do was they tried to introduce a new bet that newcomers could understand. And then they tried to rape them, which the whole point of a new bet is to let people win. And then when they win, get more money and put it back through. And the, and, and the guys, that, that was the problem. But I, I think when you try to defend any part of it, the people that say what I just said, they get so upset at you. But I, th I think I think like you're right, which is at the beginning, I mean a lot of the nuance goes to die in Twitter, but um, and a lot of people on Twitter, they don't probably give you credit for what you know already. Um, and some people don't understand, they don't even know what you know. But um, I think like if you had a, I think 5% would be tough, even though I wish it was 5%, but if you had like a six or 7% takeout and you looked at racing like a checkerboard, you'd have like, like look at the Derby. You'd have horse one versus horses two through 20 on a head to head wager in that race. And there'd be a price on horse one beating horse two through 20 and vice versa, horse through two, two, two through 20 beating horse one with a price that you could go make a bet at. So it'd be 400 or 300 and whatever, 19 times 19. Um, you, you, there, there'd be, there'd be close to 400 combinations. So, um, and that'd be fun bet. There'd be a lot of people that would like that bet that, 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 you know, it's hard, you know, I, I bet the Derby every year and I've picked the winner, but not, not that many times, but I'd love to say, you know what? I think this horse is sneaky. Now, you know, do, I think he might run fourth or fifth and this horse I think is a bad favorite, um, that might run up the track cause he might, you know, he might, he might not go that far. Well, I might get a great price on that, but it, if I'm right, I'm, I, I'm surely I'm going to get paid because I have an opinion that isn't going to be widely held, but there's no way to maximize or, or capitalize on that opinion unless there's fixed odds wagering, you, you know, unless you're just betting your buddy. Like you and I have made bets on the ride home from the Derby after 10 mint juleps that mm. thankfully I won <laughs> thanks to your man, Amy. but you know, normally those bets aren't available, but they would be in a, in a fixed odds environment, you know, especially around the, 
the big races, like in like like, like the big like 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 on the grade ones, you you could have a lot of fixed odds betting and the races that are on NBC or whatever. Like you 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 could you could have some cool bets, and I, I just I don't yeah. see yeah. I don't see the drawback to trying. And, and the, and the thing it's is, it's going to hurt anything. It's not going to hurt anything. No, and you don't. And, and look, if you want to be really that, if you're listening and you're a racetrack racetrack operator or you're a, someone who has some kind of say, if you're that concerned about fixed odds cannibalizing the win place show pool, it's silly. But if you're that concerned with it, you can do different stuff that doesn't exist currently. Um, I think it's ridiculous that there's not a way to bet on who's going to win the jockey meet at Saratoga every summer. It would be so much fun. It includes, you get involved. You're, you're watching every day to see what happens and it's easy. It's not going to take every any jockey, handle. Every it, jockey should have an over under on wins. That should be, be awesome. priced after every race, every, be awesome. every, jo- every race, Flavian Pratt. How many is he going to win? Velasquez. How many is he going to win? Rosario. How many is he going to win? Todd Pletcher. How many is he going to win? Every race. That bet, like, it's like over under in baseball wins. It changes every day, and you it's and they have a market on it every day. And for like the, I don't believe if somebody bets on uh, how many races uh, Jose Ortiz wins today or this week or this meet, I don't think that's going to affect paramutual handle. One one hundred to one percent. I, I don't see. I don't. I, I see it as additive, and you know, the more people that can come and start betting on those things. The nice things about fixed odds with a good takeout is it's either or. It's hard to hit the fifty cent pick four. You know, and like pick four races in a row with combinations. Like it's hard to hit fixed odds. It's like yes or no. Yeah, and it's you know, and, and you, you, people. People that come to the racetrack, they might lose. I'm sure they'll lose money because they're not as good a handicappers as a lot of people. But chances are, just like I'm not as good of a football handicapper as somebody that's got an algorithm and a model and watches every game. I'll watch football every Sunday, and I bet. You know, some years I win, some years I lose. But I feel like I have a shot. I th- you know, in, in horse racing, I, I probably don't spend as much time handicapping as I did before I took over Glen Hill farm, but I probably, I can't be as bad. I can't be much worse of a handicapper as I was 20 years ago when I was 24 years old. Okay. But I know how much money I bet and how much money I won 20 years ago or lost. And as a percentage of my handle, and I know what I did today and I don't do as well today. Okay. So, I would think I know more. I've met you. I've met Paul Matisse. I, I know Quigley. Uh, I, I know a lot of people that I, I definitely know way more than I did then. But what, but what's happened is the game has gotten so much tougher because we have that aging consumer who's now dead. Um, we don't have the new people coming in because they've got fantasy sports and fixed odds racing on their phone. And those, those are in sports that they understand. They grew up playing. They grew up watching. Their neighbors know. They can talk about it. The pricing is better and the data is free. So if you don't start offering bets or 
pricing the bets differently than you've done. Like we've messed up a business that had a monopoly. Like, 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 like the day cell phones were able to download ExpressBet and Twin Spires, we should have had an absolute explosion in handle. And if we didn't, we should have looked at our business and said, why don't we have an explosion in handle? Because everybody with a phone is a potential customer. They don't have to drive to the track. They don't have to fight traffic. They don't have to pay gas. They don't have to pay to get in. They can bet on their phone and handle went down. So if that doesn't tell you that the way our business is priced and set up and the bets we offer aren't good enough, I don't know how to talk to you. But the problem is the same people that were in charge 25 years ago that didn't adapt are in charge today. So how, how, like, how, you know, so that, that's, that's the frustration that I have. And I know a lot of other people share, um, you know, but I'm not giving up. And I know a lot of people have given up or they think it's a waste of time. Like I'm going to keep trying, you know, because I'm passionate about the horse business. And I think if, if other people can see how great it is being around these horses, being at the backside, the camaraderie with the team, actually the way the horses are, cared for you know the passion the connection that people have if we could if we could really translate that to the general public we'd really grow our sport i know some people hate our sport but there's way more people that don't have opinion on the sport out there than there are ones that hate it and if we package it right and show it right we're going to convert a lot of people to our sport um but i just, i don't see us looking at things, you know, in a, in an innovative way, um, you know, and, and, and I, I love Lexington. I lived in Lexington five years and I got a lot of dear friends in Lexington, but in horse racing, Lexington's a bubble. It's the biggest thing in town. All the most successful people, um, have horse farms, you know, they, and they all go nice places and watch horse racing. But when you go other places, you know, you know, that's kind of not the case. So, I think people need to understand what's going on around the country and, you know, what, uh, what clearly what we're doing and what we have done hasn't been good enough. And I agree. Like we don't, we're not talking about HISA here, but I agree. I would, I would be for HISA, but I I see the problems in HISA, but I would trade the problems we're going to, end up with in HISA for the problems we currently have, because what we currently have is untenable. It's messed up, but everyone is so concerned about pushing that through or trying to stop it going through and hiring lawyers and writing press releases and sending email blasts about how stupid the other side is that we've lost for way too long. The, uh, the understanding that the that, that whether you're for or against HISA, you should definitely be for presenting this sport to modern consumers in a great way, so that we can all have something going forward. Like, and anyone should be for that from a from a participant side. Um, but for some reason, they just get so concerned about the integrity. Um, and I'd be. I mean, I'd have smaller vet bills and um, be more for integrity than anybody. Um, 
but I think that I, I just think it's a big waste of time arguing for because there's so many so many people already doing it. So that's why I've kind of tried to argue for other ways to help the business. We, you know, we, we talked about the fixed odds thing and some of the other, uh, you know, we'll, and we'll touch on some of the other um, kind of missions and ideas for that the Idea Foundation has been working on. Where where does does the does the free data rank in terms of difficulty of getting accomplished? Um, where it should, you, it should where be, it should it should it should be the simplest thing in the world. It should be just a free square. Okay, um, you should put data into the hands of customers. I'm not saying give the daily racing form for free, or Thorograph for free, or Ragazin for free, or time form for free those people what they've done is they've taken the raw data they've packaged it into a format and they've put some sort of secret sauce into it from a speed figure a track variant a ground loss a wind you know all kinds of factors and they put out a speed figure or some sort of class rating or some some kind of qualifier on the level of a horse. And I think they should definitely be paid for that information because it's it's an advantage to have that information because just the raw time of a race in one minute and 11 and three fifths seconds for six furlongs and how far the horse was winning by second by third by and what, what where they were at every point of call and how much money that horse has earned in their life on each surface all that information is what those people need before they put their before they put their real work into it and repackage it but the basic information like the basic equibase pps without the speed figure or basic drf pps in that format without the speed figure and without the tomlinson ratings without them all those just the just the running lines the pedigree of the horse the name of the horse the trainer stats the jockey stats what they've done in each year what they've done on each surface and their lifetime pps how fast they ran what point of call that should be free because that's simple to do okay and i understand there's a chart caller that needs to be at the track and i understand there's a um you know there's software that needs to be maintained to put that stuff in but the benefit to giving that information to anybody that wants it there anyone that wants it is going to be a consumer in the sport okay so essentially we're going to give somebody something for free it's like giving it's like it's like the, it's like barry greenstein used to give free poker lessons like and then 20 minutes later, he was taking money off and playing poker. He didn't say it cost $50 for poker lessons. You know, you give, you give, give the people the information. Let college kids start to study it, just like they make their own models for everything else, for fantasy sports, for, for gambling. Let them start playing with the data and let them start organizing it. Um, let them start seeing if they can see trends and let them start betting. Like the point is to get them to bet not to charge them i mean you you pay more for you you pay more for a daily racing form yearly subscription 
than you would pay annually for Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus, Paramount, Showtime, HBO Max combined. Okay? That's crazy. That's crazy. So I just said daily rising forms should charge, but there's no way they couldn't charge less money or if, if they weren't charged so much for that data. It's ridiculous. So the, the money that the money that Equibase is owned two-thirds by the tracks and a third by the jockey club. I don't know. They don't open their books, so nobody knows what they make. But I don't think it's worth the money that the tracks are getting in a dividend. I, I would say that what you can gain by giving up that you wouldn't give up the whole dividend, but what you would what you would give up by giving free basic PPs to people, which wouldn't be that much because most people need. I would I would pay for the buyer speed figure, the rags and figures. Most people that become serious will, but what you give up by giving the free information can't be as big of a risk as the reward might be if we transfer if we, if, if if that translates to more customers. I think it's the simplest thing, but. It's actually of anything we've advocated for, it's had the most pushback. People are just so offended that we would suggest giving away data to help grow the business. It's, it's, it's offensive to them, which I think is crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 before the bracket pools, uh, it's, it's endless. It's endless what, what you can find. Yeah, and it's free. It's free. And like, you're finding out who the, who the, backup point guard is on you know Chattanooga whoever some team you never heard of and why like people people are putting out analysis on that for free and like if you want to it's Tuesday so there's nothing great but on Thursday if you, if you want to see who's running at Gulfstream yeah you can go on Equibase and get the overnight but like actually get the past performances it should be free we're trying to get people to start betting and the, and the biggest advocates for it should be the robotic players because they need more people betting. If they start betting against um, themselves, their margins are going to get thinner and thinner and thinner because the betting is going to become more and more sophisticated and pretty soon it ain't going to be worth it. So the only way any of the, the reason none of us are, maybe you do better than you used to, but I don't know a lot of people that think they're getting paid better when they hit an exacta or trifecta or pick three or pick four than they did 10 years ago. No, the no. business has got way sharper, way sharper. And, you know, that's because all the, all the bad players are broke because they're winning less when they win. Uh, we're not translating new customers. And the, the robotic players are playing in a lower takeout with better technology. So they're, they're just going to keep eating everybody else. Like I'm not against the robotic players. I think we need them for the liquidity in the pools and I wish we had more of them, but they'd do better if they, if they, if we all had a lower takeout, they, their rebate would go down, but they'd win so much more in the pools that they had, you know, everybody would do better and then there would be more money turned through and they'd end up actually making more money, but they want their rebate because they don't, the more they bet, the more they win based on their model. But most people, 99.9% of handicappers and probably two thirds of the handle would way, would be much more in favor 
of a lower takeout and a subsequently lower rebate and win money in the pools than get more money from your rebate. You just, you just, you just would, it would be better. And then, and then people churn handle, they turn rebate too, obviously, but they, they, they turn handle quite a bit. They, they turn winnings quite a bit. Like when, when you get your rebate at the end of the month. So, or I do. So that's kind of where I would come from. But the, the data, it's so silly. I mean, it's, it's, it's really disappointing that, and, and you'll find certain racetracks, like Churchill, Mike Ziegler, he'd be fine with free data, I think. Not putting words in his mouth, but he wouldn't have a problem with it. But small tracks are against it. And a lot of the people on the Equibase board, they don't bet. So, you know, the, 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 the problem there is like any business, like I don't have great hair. And my dad was bald and my grandpa went bald. So we had to talk to people that use shampoo. We couldn't just tell them what they should do. <laughs> it's not, I'm not, I'm not even being funny. It's this, that's what we do. We got people that don't use our product running the business. It's, it's the most bizarre thing in the world. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and, and it's like, I think about it when I first started playing um, you know, I, I was in Texas and I had a twin spires account before Texas and twin spires started beefing. And I remember that if you would bet a dollar and this is what I was, you know, I'd deposit $60 or $75 and just try to make it work for the night or whatever. You could bet a dollar to show at a racetrack and you could get the brisnet past performances for any racetrack for free. And so it allowed me to look at a lot of races because I wasn't going to spend the six ninety nine. I I only had seventy five to bet with. Like I, you know, I'm not going to get I'm not going to get uh, Evangeline Downs and just to be a sicko. I, and so I would have to try to get it for free. But it's like that barrier to entry now is just it, it's not it's not easy. It's, and and they wouldn't be giving up very much. They they they'd st- Like DRF and Thograph and Ragazin, I mean, they, they don't want free data, but what what they would have to realize is their product, their business is going to grow if they have a great product, if the customer base grows, okay? They, they, they can win market share based on their figures and the way they lay out their product if they're and and their business can be successful if they're selling to a larger pool of customers right now less and less and less and less and less people are buying horses and 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 there's less races and there's less people betting so you have to you have to like everyone people that and you don't argue about much of anything because i mean you don't look like the typical horse player. You didn't come from a family that took you racing, you, you, you know, owning horses. You don't come from an area of a hotbed of horse players like 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 like, like a Texas needs ADW betting. Like you're different. So instead of and 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 you like you got a little bit of a gambling thing that so okay, but um, you know, instead of talking to people that came to our sport that are in their twenties or thirties or forties, we continue to, we continue to ask, put the same people in the same rooms and ask them what we should do. 
and they've been overseeing the thing forever. So, you know, I know that if you bet a dollar, you can get free PPs. And most people that bet know that you can do that. But all you'd have to say is, is free data. Come on this website and look, look at the past performances. The, the, the goodwill that you would create is so huge. And then if you start to get people coming to these websites, and it just can't be one thing. You can't do one thing and it's like going to flick the switch. But if you start to give the data away for free and offer bets that are interesting and price the product well, and, you know, the, pretty soon more and more people will start liking the sport and then there'll be a bigger pie for everybody. But all everybody wants to do is argue against some idea without recognizing the trends in this business are not good enough. So it's fine to argue like we shouldn't do this, but arguing against change when we've got a diminishing business, I mean, that's, that's, just, a, that's just a slower way to die. So that that's kind of that that's a little bit of the of the frustration. T tell me a little bit about the the breakage win, uh, kind of how yeah. that went with with getting that victory in Kentucky and and where where are you? What are you guys hearing about other other jurisdictions? Honestly, I mean that you've got to give Pat Cummings a lot of credit for that. Um, I'm great at ideas. Um, but Pat is really a detailed person that does a lot of follow through. Um, Pat met uh, Damon Thayer, or I've met Damon Thayer too, but Pat and Damon and I uh, were brought to dinner and met Adam Koenig, who was, uh, you know, Senator from Northern Kentucky um, at the time. He's a very good guy. He got, he got out radicalized in a primary. And so he, so he's no longer, in the legislature, but he's a great guy. Um, horse racing fan, you know, Turfway Park is in his uh, jurisdiction. Um, and we explained the breakage. So Adam Koenig really felt that, you know, historical horse racing uh, was a huge win for the racetracks and obviously the horsemen because it brought a lot of purses and he's a horse player and he really wanted to do something for gamblers and he he really took he really took the breakage up as a as a big cause of his um and he was a big advocate for it and he got it through um churchill was vehemently against the breakage um that like like they they just you just would have thought um we were we were we were taking something away from them that was theirs like, like never seen somebody so upset and they will try to reverse the breakage I don't, know, I don't think they will, but Adam's not there anymore. But they, they will do whatever they can to replace the breakage in Kentucky. I think it's despicable. But all you have to do is look at the way Churchill operates long term. It's not for the growth of horse racing for everybody. It's for themselves. Now, I love the Derby. I love the Oaks. I think it's great they invested in Turfway. But they will try to reverse the breakage. Um, I, you know, it's great when a horse pays... 478 instead of 460 or 278 instead of 260 it makes it it makes a big deal um the real resistance to breakage was from 100 years ago when you know people didn't want to be carrying pennies around but 90 percent of the betting or more now is done on the phone or on the computer you know so the pennies just go into your account 
you know, it, it can be as much as a 5% takeout reduction or 10% takeout reduction, you know, every bet in Kentucky. And so, you know, the, the hard, the, the higher the payout, um, the smaller the percentage, a couple pennies are, or even 18 pennies are of the whole, but it's a takeout reduction on every bet in Kentucky. Um, you know, I think it's great. We think um, if you got breakage, we think it's 50 basis points. So if you eliminated breakage nationally on $12 billion in handle, you'd create $60 million in uh, money returned to horse players. And we think that that $60 million would be churned four times. So we think it's about $240 million in handle growth if you actually got breakage return nationally to horse players. It'd be huge. Um, $240 million would be, you know, the a huge growth in handle. So we hope other states states take up the cause. Um, I'd hope Naira will do it. Like when David O'Rourke was the CFO of Naira, he was the first person that was receptive to breakage. Um, when he got the CEO job, he kind of moved on to things that were more material to, you know, Naira's future. Um, but we'd love another crack at him and at that organization because I think Joe Applebaum really understands horse players. I think David O'Rourke understands the revenue, what they've done in the, uh, you know, about kicking the robotic players out of the wind pool, I think is great. Um, you know, I, I would think he's, I think there's a chance there, but uh, nothing imminent, but I hope, I hope it happens sometime in the next few years. Um, and I would think other states, once they really explain, um, you know, where that money is currently going and where it should go, I, th I think, I think they'll start to adopt it, but it's you know, changing, getting, getting laws passed in state legislatures is, it's a lot of work, a lot of process, a grind. Like we're really thankful to Damon there and Adam Koenig for doing it in Kentucky. And, you know, I pray that it, it stays. I mean, it, it really should. And I think it's a nice benefit. Um, you know, and it's, a, it's the, the, the breakage was not though, but idea foundations, you know, we weren't the uh, inventor of getting rid of breakage, but I would say um, there's no way it would have happened without us. You know, and I'm I'm proud of it, and I'm really I'm really proud of Pat because it's a big it's a big win for Pat that I couldn't have done myself. I don't have the I don't have the wherewithal detail. Um, go sit in Frankfurt and you know listen to things get read, and you know I'm not I'm not I, I'm not that that's not what I'm good at. Um, you know, and but Pat is exceptionally good at that detail oriented. I think I think Pat. Um, I personally think he's the most capable executive in the horse business in, in this country. Um, you know, and I can't believe he's running our organization. I'm glad he is, but, um, you know, in a, in a business that is been in decline, a lot of the organizations have the same people running them. They've been running them for 20, 30 years. Um, you know, and he, he's probably seen as, you know, he's an outsider from Philadelphia that watched horse racing on, for 30 minutes a day when they had a replay show of Philadelphia park and became an announcer and started blogs and, 
you know, work for Trakis, moved to Hong Kong because he had an opportunity. Like he doesn't have the normal pedigree. Um, but I really think we need people like Pat who are just passionate about racing, want to make it better, have been around the world and seen, you know, I mean, I'm sure Pat goes around the world and he can tell things that the United States does that they can take up too. I think a lot of times people think he thinks just because something happens somewhere else, it's always better. And I can tell you, he doesn't think that way. Um, but a lot of people only know him from Twitter. I mean, he speaks better than me. He reads better than me. He presents very well. He's always prepared. Um, I think he's really, really good. So it's really Pat's um, doing for breakage. But obviously, um, you know, we we were the, I started the TIF and we kind of have been the, you know, the main source of funding for it. But we've, we've, we've raised money from, other owners and breeders that are that it's really really helpful and hope to continue to do so but and i think i think the world of pat and it's really because of him that we got the breakage it's because of him that we're getting the category one you know in oklahoma it's coming now um in ohio we think and i think it's you know the the the, the stewards have said it's only a matter of time before it's everywhere i think the important thing on category one is it it's it 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 rewards the best horse, but at the same time, there, there needs to be huge penalties and suspensions for reckless riding. I think if you just reward the best horse without the, you know, without the stick, you're going to have some dangerous riding. So I think in, in jurisdictions where category one works, there's such a huge deterrent to unsafe riding that they don't get it. Um, I think a lot of people hear when there's a foul, um, doesn't matter if your horse wins wins and they would have won anyway they think oh my god we're going to be taking jockeys out in wheelchairs every day but it actually hasn't been that way in jurisdictions that have category one um they actually have really safe racing and jockeys like gary stevens is on our board he's ridden all over the world um and he's a jockey agent now and he knows every jockey probably for the last 50 years in this country and most of them overseas and he's an advocate for category one and there'd be nobody more into safety than Gary. So I think once you understand it, you'd be for it. But a lot of people, they hear about it and they see it in a tweet, however many characters that is 200 or something. And they tell you why they think it's not good. But you know, when you hear Pat talk about it, he talks about it better than me. Um, it, it is, it is good. So that thing's moving. Um, I think the fixed odds is inevitable uh, or, if it, if it, I think fixed odds is inevitable. Um, that still means the work has to do, work has to happen to get it done. Like Vinny Viola told me one time, he said, you know, things change when they're supposed to. They don't always change when you want them to. They don't always change when they should. They just they change when they have to. Um, and sometimes that's too slow. But I think the fixed odds, it's going to be inevitable. Now it's up to Churchill whether they want to make the Derby. Um, I'm sure they. I'm sure they will want to make it bigger than it is, but I don't. I can't believe they haven't been advocates for it yet. But I hope they do. Um, you know, I think it'd be benefit to Breeders' Cup, and I think it'd be benefit to Keeneland, Saratoga, and Delmar too, where we get Oaklawn, where we get some fans that wouldn't normally be horse racing people, and maybe we'll convert some customers. I got a, a couple of more things I wanted to run through before we get out of here. The, the first one is, you know, if anybody's listening... still listening, if anybody's still listening, you're brave. <laughs> I'm starting to lose my voice, but you you keep and I have to throw a crawfish ball tonight with about 300 people at Glen Hill Farm. So 
we got to do this in the next 10 minutes, JK. Okay. I got you. All right. So the, the, the one thing I noticed in this conversation is when it comes to fixed odds, when it comes to the free data, uh, data when it comes to uh, the breakage stuff, there just really is a, and, and even your, your op-ed that you wrote, there really is a lack of understanding about handle, what drives handle and how handle works. I mean, what, 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 do we just have to keep having conversations like this to get that, to get that through to some people? Cause you know, there's more I mean, data the, that's the free. Horsemen, there's going to be more. The horsemen have no idea how much power they actually have. Um, they're not organized. They're organized against LASIKs and against HISA, but they're not organized where they can actually study this. And some people get really upset when I say that, but I really don't care because it's true. Like we have talked to horsemen's groups and they have no idea. Like I've talked to the, I've talked to the Florida horsemen's group and they have no idea uh, what, rate the computer guys get they have no idea what percentage the computer guys are it's very hard to go and make negotiating uh very hard to negotiate against a racetrack for a purse account when you don't have the facts and they don't there's no way they do um it's like if there's there's very smart people who've built and run very big organizations that serve on boards of major corporations, not just their own, that are on the boards of the horse business. They're really smart people. Um, if you put the handle information in front of them and presented to them and showed how it's changed, they will make the right decisions on behalf of our sport. Like HISA is not uh, interrupting the Interstate Horse Racing Act, okay? Interstate Horse Racing Act still says that in order to sell a bet across state lines, you need a racetrack and a horseman's group and a regulator. You need two out of three, and the regulator just breaks the tie, okay? The horseman and the track are who negotiates for simulcast rights, okay? So horsemen should demand this information and then they should share it, okay? Now, antitrust, Kentucky's not supposed to share with Illinois, not supposed to share with New York. But the other side of that coin is when that, when that, was, um, when that was created, the racetrack corporations didn't own tracks in 10 or 15 states or two corporations own all the tracks, okay? So at this point, the industry should understand where handle comes from, what silos are betting what, what the takeout charge to the customers in those silos are, what the contribution is to purses, and how that has changed. If we studied that and understood that, a lot more of the decisions and the direction that we would go in a business would be in the right one. But currently, the tracks who own the ADWs and they own the bet processors, the tote companies, they are invested in the elite turf club and they are um, they're partners with Roberts, the streaming. They make money based on handle, okay? We as, so, so they don't care where the handle comes from or how it gets there. They make money based on handle. 
we as horsemen and we as fans and gamblers should be much more concerned with how little of the handle is actually coming from the general public because the, 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 the revenue from the general public dollar for dollar is way more for a dollar bet by you or me and you're a big better and I'm a big better, but a dollar that we bet is worth way more to the purses and to the benevolence of the industry, all the aftercare, all the backstretch programs, all the money that's bet when we bet goes to support the horses, the people, the purses way more than when elite turf club bets. It just does. When you start to show those numbers, people will start to change things in a positive way. Um, and I think, I think, I, I just, I can't believe that we don't have eyes on that information as an industry. Um, we, we should be demanding for it. We should be demanding it. Um, you know, Marshall Graham, who was on the wagering committee and he's on the TIF board, I forgot to mention him. I don't know why. I mean, he'd have a great understanding of horse racing economics because he owns a lot of horses and he bets way more than, you know, most people. Um, he'd be an advocate for this. I mean, it's like people that bet and own horses that they would understand how this business is um, and they'd be big advocates for more information and better analysis of it. The tracks would be vehemently against it because the tracks own the tote companies and they, they like it how it is. They've made a lot of money. Um, but long-term, long-term, it will be better for all, including the tracks, if we can grow this business and get more customers and position, position it the right way. Uh, but right now they've made, a, they've made a fortune off of this business. I mean, you look at Churchill's stock price, I mean, they're, they're a gaming and technology company that hosts the Kentucky Derby. Uh, you think about the value of Stronach with the, with the Twin Spires, excuse me, with ExpressBet, you know, and the, the, the technology properties they have. I mean, they've done remarkably well in this business while the business has declined, while there's an aging fan base, while there's less horses born, they've continued to do well. So at some point, the the horsemen, the rank and file horsemen, and then the jockey club breeders cup. I'm not on the jockey club, but the jockey club breeders cup type horsemen, they need to get together on some of these issues. Um, because the tracks have been such a beneficiary between, because the horsemen are really the ones that have the negotiating power, as we all know, um, because one vote for a horseman, uh, if you own one horse you're, you're a member of the hbpa and if you have 100 horses you're a member of the hbpa there's a lot more people own one than 100 and the horsemen they're able to control the hbpa boards but when they get in there they're they've really been successful in one getting good purses because they've gotten the slot subsidies and two uh you know keeping the so far keeping the uniformity and the you know heisa type stuff out now we'll, we'll see i hope the heisa comes through um but it, i'm not gonna argue it doesn't have a lot of problems but once this I, I i hope my hope is that once this heisa happens the horsemen are still gonna have their power 
and they're still going to be the ones that have to neg negotiate the purse account with the tracks. But once they've stopped fighting the HISA, which is hopefully will happen soon when it comes through, they're still going to need to figure out how to position our sport as the representatives of owners in a better way. Because right now the tracks are just having a field day doing what they want. And, you know, they, 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 they've really benefited from the war between owners and uh, the different class of owners, if you will. And maybe that's, I don't think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but maybe that's too far afield for some, but I actually don't think so. I think, I think the tracks have been a huge beneficiary of the, the disorganization in the horse business. Craig, how can people get behind the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation? How can they support it? How can they, what do you guys need from people that are potentially listening to kind of help these initiatives to get some of these things going in the right direction? I mean, I don't think we're ever going to be everything for everybody or what everybody wants. I mean, I, we're not a completely a gambling organization because we've got a lot of owners and they, they have owners issues too. Um, you know, so I, 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 I've heard and I've heard from good friends of mine, you know, that we don't go far enough. And then I've heard from friends of mine in the, you know, on the horse side that says, all you guys talk about is gambling. And I don't understand that. So I think, um, I think what people need to understand is what we're trying to do is grow the business and present it to new consumers in a way that's going to hopefully activate them to our sport. And then anything we are able to achieve should be a benefit to existing customers too. So, you know, I can see how a racetrack or a technology operator might not be against what we're for, but I really think if you're, if you're a better or a, or a horseman, by horsemen, I say basically a participant. You should really be for what we're doing. And I think if owners and gamblers started speaking more, really originally, that was what I was trying to do was find the commonality between owners and gamblers and build a build a organization that the tracks would have to listen to because the owners control the product and the gamblers bet the money. I, I, that's still my hope, but um, we hadn't been able to get there yet. But we're just, you know, I hope we're in our infancy, but um, I just, I just would like, you know, I, I, you know, you want people to support and when they have a complaint or they have a suggestion, you know, most people have my phone number can get it or have Pat's or can get it. And, you know, we, we, we've, there, there's never been a call that any of us have ignored. Um, I think the, I think the, I think a lot of people, I think one of the, one of the, one of the sad things about our horse business is a lot of people have put in a lot of time trying to help it. And as they, as they have become frustrated or they have given up, inevitably they think somebody else can't achieve what they tried to do or they can't help or what somebody else is trying to do isn't as important as what they did. Um, you know, but this is a business that frankly, nobody's been able to fix and the wins have been really baby steps. Um, and you know, I would, we would just be looking for, looking for support um, because what we're trying to do, um, I think we've made a little more headway than some of the other people that have tried to try to help it from a consumer and gambler horse player standpoint. And we'd just sort of be looking for support there um, just publicly. But, you know, I know there's going to be people that, you know, they still have their issues and that, and that, that's obviously fine. Um, you know, I think the horsemen really need to understand that 
we're trying to grow the revenue in the business. I don't think high purses from slots or from historical machines or from casinos. Um, it, it, it might help the industry because there's, there's prize money and the prize money drives the activity in the commercial market. But long-term, if we don't have a lot more people betting horses, horse bettors are really the biggest advocates for our sport. Um, and horse bettors up until even today are still the, the, uh, the source of all of our gamblers, of, excuse me, all of our owners. Almost, almost all the owners today started out going to the track with somebody that um, took them to the track. You know, now we're in a spot where most people are watching on their phone or on TV, uh, you know, and they're not going to have that uncle or grandpa or dad or brother or mom or whatever um, that, you know, grabbed their hand and go, took them to the track. Uh, they're they're going to be at home. You know, we, I, I love going to the races more than anybody, but it's not that fun, you know, in a seat that, in a place that was built for 50,000 people with 1200 people there, you know, at, at Belmont park, it's just not that fun. Um, but in the modern day, people are consuming, you know, on their phones, on their tablets, you know, plugged into their TV. And we, we just have to present a product that is going to be compelling for the modern, you know, the modern consumer. Um, and that's really what we've advocated for the whole time. So I would just look for support in that. You know, if you want to, if you want to donate, we'd love to have it. It's on our website. Um, we actually report uh, our, you know, our budget and our expenditures and what we have, what we have, you know, how much money Pat has made, how much money has been spent on uh, travel to different industry events. Uh, and symposiums, what have you, um, how much has like every dollar is accounted for. And I'd say we're the only horse organization that, 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 that presents that publicly. And I'll tell you all of the TIF expenditures, um, in the last four years, it's almost five years now is, is approximately an eighth of what one McKinsey study costs from the jockey club. 10 years ago. So when, you know, we, we, we do this on a, I mean, it's not a shoestring budget, not, I, I, you know, but I think it's, I think it's important um, that there's an organization like this in the horse business that can, you know, that can advocate for growing the business. We don't take money from other industry organizations. A lot of these organizations, they just, they just pay each other. Um, money goes from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next for all of their, I, you know, for all their things and, you know, they're super highly paid executives. Ray Pollock doesn't do it anymore, but he used to, you can Google it. Like if you, if you write Ray Pollock president's day, he used to write what all of the supposed not-for-profit managers that are there to help the horse business, the top 20 salaries. You wouldn't believe the salaries paid to people in the horse business that are supposedly helping our business. But as a whole, the business hasn't, it, it, there isn't one of them that actually looks at the consumer and tries to grow the business. They're all like, it's just a total spider web of regulation and organizations and seats at the tables and 
you know, uh, round tables and symposiums and get everybody in one room and, you know, this committee, that committee, and it's, they're all busy and they're all passionate for the horse business. But I would say we're the one that um, is actually looking to grow the business, present the business to potential customers. Um, you know, it might not be what everybody would do if they were, if they were running it or they had started it or they were on the board of it, but it is what, it is what we, uh, it is how we think the best way to do it, try to educate people. And if they're educated, um, hopefully they'll grow, you know, hopefully they'll make decisions in the board seats that they sit in that will affect change to grow the business. That that's really what, that's really what we're trying to do. And, you know, I, I came to it because I'd been on all the boards. I was, I just finished my ninth year on the graded stakes committee and I can explain to you how that works another time on another call. And it's a, you know, it's interesting committee and process. I've, I was chairman of the racing and nominations for breeders cup. So I've been in a number, I can't tell you how many people I have listened to talk about drugs and regulation and medication and withdrawal to like, I've done it, but in all these meetings, I've never heard who's betting, why are they betting, what else are they betting on, um, how do we grow that? Like, I've never heard it, and it's 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 amazing that in all these organizations, it isn't brought up. You know, I got voted off Breeders' Cup, and there's no more wagering committees. So, you know, Drew is a he's he's passionate about the wagering, and in his and in his op-ed. You know, they talked about the handle and how much they appreciate the horse players, but there's no more wagering committee. Um, you know, and I think giving horse players a voice to, it doesn't matter what audience, but when horse players are actually, it, doesn't, it matters the audience more than it matters the board itself. Like when, when horse players have a chance to talk to people with a huge stake in the business, I think they find that they have so much in common because they, they want an improved business. But for some reason, you know, a lot of people think gambling is a four-letter word, and like, oh, we we don't even want to discuss gambling in, in this committee. Like, I don't gamble, and I don't think you know, it's this is a gambling sport. Um, you know, we're in Ocala. If you go to the World Equestrian Center, it's the most beautiful place you've ever seen. They have so many different horse disciplines. They've got Chanel stores. They've got, you know, they, they've got they've got two hundred Range Rovers in the parking lot. Um, it's that's a sport. They don't, they don't, they race for ribbons and trophies uh, and they don't have prize money and there's no gambling. That's a sport. Um, ours is a business. It's a commercial business that's driven by the revenue model has always been driven by horse players and by betting on horse racing. And if we forget that, or we try to ignore that, we're going to lose our sport. And, you know, that we have really, or I have really tried to, um, speak to that. Now, I've never talked for two and a half hours in my life um, about it, but, you know, it, it's gone by fast. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of what we've, that's kind of what we've gone for. I love it. Craig, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I wish I was there. This, I've, I've heard about these legendary crawfish boils at uh, Glen Hill Farm, but uh, you'll well, have you're to... the, you'd, be, you'd be the best person because when you spill all that Cajun stuff, no one would notice on your shirt. <laughs> Greg, I appreciate the time, and uh, we'll talk Have soon. Have a good one. Okay. Take care. Yeah, look, he, he was doing all right. I thought his voice sounded fine. I had really have heard about these legendary crawfish boils. You, said, you heard him. He said he's having 300 people. It's the OBS sale, sale in Ocala. So 
I think that he just invites everyone that's in town, all the agents, all the consigners, everyone, and to come over to uh, Glen Hill Farm for a, a crawfish boil. So um, I wish I was there, but instead, it's, I think it's not snowing outside, but it is snowy. Um, if you stuck around for that, I, I appreciate it. And, and I, I want to reiterate, you know, when, when you see Craig or, 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 or Pat posting the, these white papers or posting their victories, um, the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, I mean, retweet those. If you, if you disagree with something that they're saying, have a conversation about it because they're just trying to move the ball forward. Uh, there's nothing else that they're trying to do um, but move the ball forward and to help this industry. Uh, if, you, if you're inclined to donate to the cause, you know, please do so. Um, I think they're, they, you know, they're, they're, their message is, is it's working. It's probably not working at the pace I think they would like, but that's just everything, right? It's like everything's slow, especially when you have to work through hundreds of years of tradition. Uh, you got to work through some, uh, some, some legal issues, state level and at the, the national level. And then you got to basically try to pry money out of people's hands that don't really understand how the moves we're trying to make are going to give them more money. It's a lot. So I um, want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing again uh, for partnering us with us on JK Plus One. I uh, want to thank PTF, Drew, uh, Spencer, Matty Ice, uh, Michelle, Billy, who else? Who else am I forgetting? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Maggie, Acacia, uh, and all of you for listening. Subscribe, retweet, tweet, comment, YouTube, Twitter, everything. Next week, I am recording. It's already booked, locked and loaded. Two-hour session in New York City with the one and only Angel Cordero with video. It's probably going to take a week to edit, so I'm going to record it next week. It probably won't come out until the week after that, but know it's coming. It's, uh, it's locked and loaded. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche. five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.